You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little man. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so simple? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the lion. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. I've not had a moment's calm at all this week because I'm throwing a baby shower on Saturday. So yesterday for you. So when you're hearing this, I survived, hopefully, in theory. Luckily, I'm not doing it alone, but it's still stressful. Also, by the time this comes out, my friend will have received her gift, which was also one of the reasons I was frantic this week because it was handmade. I made her this custom baby blanket. I used some of my Photoshop skills, got some custom fabric, made her a quilt. And it's very unhinged and it's very cute and I'm very proud of it. And turns out I can still quilt and I could do that. So (laughs) I hadn't made a quilt since I was like 16. So good to know that those skills are still knocking around in my head. As you could probably guess, no movie reviews this week because I have been crazy doing other things. Lots of background movies, but no movie theater movies, which is a bummer because I really wanted to see Killers of the Flower Moon. Like I had a ticket for Thursday and then I'm like, okay, maybe I can go Friday. And I know I can't go on Saturday because that's a baby shower and that's when I'm recording. I'm recording this at like eight o'clock in the morning. So definitely not going to be able to see today because it's a three and a half hour movie. Baby Shower is at four. It would be a miracle if I could do both. And I'm not even going to try, but like there's a little part of me that goes, maybe? No. But yeah, I'll go on Sunday like I'm an old person, not see it on the Friday nights with the film bros. Devastated. Strike updates. Everybody's mad. Everybody's very mad. They're apparently not allowed to be characters from Halloween, which made everybody make fun of them because, you know, priorities at the moment. But yeah, that's everybody's up in a tizzy. Everybody's wrong. Everybody's right. I mean, the actors tried to come up with a proposal, the rich ones, that would benefit the working actors. Honestly, best idea anyone's come up with the whole time to me for the most part. And it was dead on arrival because they're like, no, we want the studios to pay for this, not you. But, uh, you know. That's, that, that's what's going on. I'm not even going to guess anymore when this is going to end. This is pointless guessing, not the not the strike. But I do know that if it doesn't end within the next week or so, two weeks, which it very likely won't, production's not going to start up till 2024. So this whole year will be a wash. And um, that means no work for crews during the holidays and not great. But yeah, if they're not back, if there's not a deal by like this week or next week, studios aren't going to see a reason to rush into production before the holidays. So yeah. And now on to this week's topic. This week, we cover Hitchcock's foray into the American film sphere, just about up to when he started working at Paramount. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Haven't you any family? No, my, my mother died years and years ago and then there was only my father, and, and he died last summer. And then I took this job. How rotten for you. Yes, it was rather, because, you see, we got on so well together. You and your father? Yes, he, he was a lovely person, very unusual. What was he? A painter. 
Ah, was he a good one? Well, I thought so, but people didn't understand him. <laughs> That's often the trouble. He, he painted trees. It, at least, it was one tree. You mean he painted the same tree over and over again? Yes, you see, he had a theory that if you should find one perfect thing or place or person, you should stick to it. Do you think that's very silly? Not at all. I'm a firm believer in that. So when we wrapped up last week, the Hitchcock family was America bound. The trio and selected staff they wished to keep on, though several would return home by the end of the year, arrived in New York in the early days of March 1939. The press seemed to follow Alfred Hitchcock everywhere as he spent his early days at the St. Regis in New York City. To his wife Alma Revel's relief, by the time the Hitchcock crew made it to Los Angeles in late March, they kind of did a little vacay across the country as they traveled west, the press was not there to greet them. On April 10th, 1939, Hitchcock's contract with Selznick International Pictures officially began. By this time, it had been officially determined that Hitchcock's first American picture would be the adaptation of Daphne du Maurier's novel, Rebecca, a.k.a. the one I slightly didn't mention by name last week. I was very proud of myself for that little creative flourish. Anyway, by the time Hitchcock stepped on the lot... He'd already more or less adapted the book into a screenplay, and Selznick became immediately aware of the fact that Hitchcock did not prepare a film in the same way as his other directors. On the other side of the coin, Hitchcock didn't think that Selznick would be that involved in the preparation of the film, as once he'd been assigned a film by his previous studio bosses, they had pretty much just let him do whatever he needed to do. That was not going to be the case in Tinseltown, or at least not with Selznick. Hitchcock submitted his script for Rebecca the first week of June, fully expecting to have a shooting date announced the following week. Instead, on June 13th, he received a thick manila envelope of notes from Selznick. Selznick had opened the notes with how shocked and disappointed he was in the work Hitchcock had turned in. He wanted the film to be more loyal to the source material and basically wanted Hitchcock to go back to square one. The script wouldn't be completed until the end of the summer, and it took several authors to come in and finish the script, which would be a habit on most future Hitchcock films. He was notoriously difficult to work with, so somebody do some work on a script for a week, be like, no, not a fit, cycle, 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 and somehow eventually they'd get a script. Hitchcock also had to face for the first time in his career the rules of the Hayes Code or the Hayes Office, which was a set of censorship guidelines imposed on American films at this time. The Hayes Code would not let Hitchcock get his original ending, which was basically the bad guy gets away with it. You weren't allowed to do that in the days of the Hayes Code, which is just its own other level of stupidity. Though they did give him a little bit of leeway with this because it was one of the more mild ones. Usually it was just to be like, I don't want to see people of the same gender holding hands or people of different races kissing. Like it was mostly that kind of stuff. But, you know, that's what counted as morality back then. So go figure. The script for Rebecca was finally approved on September 7th, and shooting began the very next day. Selznick had made sure that while the script wasn't ready, they kind of had an idea what the sets were going to be, and those were being built throughout. He had also made sure the whole film got cast alongside of all of that happening. He feared that the film's actors, which were primarily English, would want to return to Europe as rumblings of war got louder and louder. Selznick feared the war would break out, which of course it did, 
did and would lead to a loss of the actors midway through shooting, which is what I said. I need to stop ad-libbing. In fact, the fighting had begun a week before production had started and there were fears that London would soon be attacked next. It ended up not being an issue for this production. The actors were there the whole time. Joan Fontaine, the unnamed lead of the film, was just 22 when shooting began on Rebecca. She would later remark on Hitchcock's controlling behavior that would become a trend with his blonde leading ladies going forward. Fontaine would describe Hitchcock's hold over her as Svengali-like during production. As shooting went on, Hitchcock struggled with Selznick's quote-unquote daily interferences, which others told him were far less intrusive than any of the other directors were getting. But Hitchcock still remarked that his film was going to be a Selznick picture, not a Hitchcock one. In reality, the genius filmmaker Hitchcock was now on the payroll of an equally genius producer. Selznick was one of the best in the game, and he just wasn't used to not necessarily being the smartest man in the room. He wasn't the person who definitively knew best, and sometimes that's a hard pill to swallow. This pattern would more or less continue for so long as they worked together. Hitchcock and Selznick did respect each other, but they clashed regularly. Hitchcock was often unhappy about Selznick's creative control and interference over his films, while Selznick was not great with money and, amongst other things, unhappy with Hitchcock shooting only what was in the script, which meant that the film could not be altered and just him in general thinking he knew better than everybody else. Their personalities were also quite mismatched. Hitchcock was more reserved, whereas Selznick was quite outgoing. One source I used used the term flamboyant. After shooting on Rebecca Wrapped, Selznick exercised a clause in Hitchcock's contract to extend him for four more. But while he had to pay Hitchcock for four more films, he didn't necessarily have to make those films. Hitchcock was lent out for his next picture, which helped secure Selznick some much-needed funds to pay his studio staff and, amongst other things, cover some gambling debts. Selznick was not good with money. Walter Wenger became Hitchcock's temporary boss starting in November 1939 for the film Foreign Correspondent, initially called Personal History, which was a spy thriller film. This landing out ended up irritating Selznick, even though he was the one that brokered the deal with Wanger, as Wanger and Hitchcock were still waiting through scripts in January. Wanger also used Hitchcock for smaller jobs that were not covered in the contract, which infuriated Selznick. He also wanted Rebecca to be his Gone with the Wind follow-up, which, of course, by this time was a smash hit, and Wanger was holding up that show. Hitchcock needed to get back to Selznick to finish Rebecca, and actually ended up having to bounce back over briefly before Foreign Correspondent was finished. Rebecca opened in theaters on April 12, 1940, and was heralded as another Hitchcock hit. The film was nominated for 11 Academy Awards, including Best Director for Hitchcock, which he would not win. John Ford did for Grapes of Wrath. Rebecca, however, won Best Picture, meaning that Selznick became a Best Picture producer two years in a row. Back then, well, actually, and still, the producers received the Best Picture Oscar. Sometimes directors can also be producers, but that was less common back then. So, uh, yeah. Selznick got an Oscar, basically, in Hitchcock's eyes, for a Hitchcock film, so kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. And in general, I'm sure that went over real well with Hitchcock. In the summer of 1940, Hitchcock signed another contract with Selznick, giving him a $250 week raise with a $15,000 bonus if the director could finish two films in one year. Hitchcock was lent out to RKO for those two films, which is a choice. 
Before that, though, Hitchcock returned home, hoping to collect his mother and bring her over to America, and was shocked to see how just a year away had emaciated her. She refused to relocate to the States, and Hitchcock left London empty-handed mere days before the first London bombings. Hitchcock's first project at RKO was an odd choice, likely a favorite to friend Carol Lombard. She and her husband, Clark Gable, were quite close with the Hitchcocks. And if they weren't neighbors, they were like damn near. And she was also new to the RKO lot. Frankly, it depends on the source. Hitchcock would later say he never even wanted to do the film Mr. and Mrs. Smith, but the RKO archives states that it actually was his idea. Whatever the case, the screwball comedy was an odd choice for a director who was by this point more known for making thrillers. Despite that, the popularity of Rebecca and Foreign Correspondent, which both ended up releasing in 1940, to this day is considered one of the best years any director has ever had as far as like releasing two films in one year. He's probably only behind like Victor Fleming, who directed Wizard of Oz and Gone with the Wind in 1939. Like that's got to be the apex, right? And then second is obviously Steven Spielberg with Jurassic Park and Schindler's List. I mean... Hitchcock's next major film was Suspicion from 1941, which marked the first of four collaborations with actor Cary Grant and is one of the rare occasions that Grant actually plays a bad guy, in this case an English con man whose actions raise suspicion in his wife. For a good chunk of the pre-production, nobody knew how the film was going to end, despite the fact that it was based on the 1932 novel Before the Fact. That definitely had an end. According to Hitchcock, RKO wanted a more quote-unquote heroic ending for Grant. An RKO treatment and memos between Hitchcock and the studio, however, show that Hitchcock emphatically desired to make a film about a woman's fantasy life, which was against the source material and is probably why the ending was a little bit undecided. So who knows? Hitchcock liked to... Hitchcock liked to tell stories, and a lot of them include his life and just making shit up. So most of what he says... you can have to kind of take with a grain of salt. Selznick almost brought Hitchcock back to the studio for a film after the RKO stunt was complete, but instead Hitchcock was then lent to Universal Pictures. At this point, Selznick was just Hitchcock's pimp, let's be honest. Hitchcock's Universal debut was Saboteur from 1942, and his second Universal film was 1943 Shadow of a Doubt, which was shot extensively on location in Northern California. Hitchcock became very fond of Santa Rosa, the small town in which he shot the film, which is also where I'm from-ish, if you remember the screen episode from a couple years ago, and NorCal in general, and would come back several times throughout his life to shoot other films. He also opened a NorCal bank account while up there and soon required a small vineyard in Santa Cruz. He loved NorCal. Shooting Shadow of a Doubt occurred at a tumultuous time for the director. He was obviously worried about his family back in England, but also harbored guilt about not being home as his country was regularly bombed. He also knew from a practical standpoint that he wouldn't exactly be on the front lines anyway. He was in his early 40s and quite overweight. But, you know, you know, it's your friends and family and they're going through they're going through it. And you're on the other side of the world, kind of. That can't be easy. People like his former boss, Michael Balkin, would blast Hitchcock in the press for, quote unquote, fleeing to Hollywood, essentially selling out and leaving the rest of them to deal with the plight of the Nazis. Within four months at the end of 1942, beginning of 1943, Hitchcock lost his mother and brother. Alma's mother also died around this time. 
The multiple punches of these deaths led to the director taking a hard look at his eating and drinking habits and hired a physician to help him lose weight. By this point, he was at his heaviest, almost 370 pounds. He also found out he had a hernia, but for some reason refused to get that fixed for 14 years, instead wearing a hernia brace, which is kind of like a girdle or like the ones I saw online looked a little bit like weightlifter belts, like basically just kind of like something that kept it like pushed in. And it was kind of ironic, like one of the biographers who I used for these episodes mentioned that like he he was afraid of death. He was a very anxious man. And he decided not to get something that could easily kill him if it like burst. Like he ignored that for 14 years. And the surgery even back then was quite simple. You just kind of like pop it back in. But yeah, instead he's like, no, a girdle that will fix my problems. So go figure. (laughs) 20th Century Fox were the next lucky ducks that Selznick lent Hitchcock to. Hitchcock's newest obsession at this time around which to make a film was one that would take place in just a single location. That idea would morph into 1944's Lifeboat. The film was shot entirely on a flooded soundstage with a rear projection faking the sea and horizon. The production was rife with issues and the actors were pretty miserable as they were covered in motor oil and often fell into the fake ocean because they were in an actual lifeboat. If that wasn't enough, there were also giant fans and sprayers to simulate the storm scenes. So basically everyone was kind of cold and wet for the six to eight weeks it probably took to shoot. Tallulah Bankhead, the top-billed actress on the film, had at some point during shooting opted to stop wearing underwear for whatever reason, which was fine and good, save for the fact that she was wearing a dress, and when she had to climb up the ladder to get into the tank to get into the boat, she'd flash the crew her uh, private area. She unfortunately did that in front of a woman who was a representative for some kind of women's lifestyle magazine, think like good housekeeping in a modern sense, who was very, very pissed at seeing another woman's vagina, I guess. And she ended up going to the front office of 20th Century and narked on the quote unquote debauchery going on on Hitchcock's set. And 20th Century Fox had to like basically go up the chain and be like, hey, uh, tell Miss Bankhead to put her panties back on. Lifeboat's so-called positive betrayal of a German character caused considerable controversy at the time of its release since it was in the thick of World War II and the Germans, while there were other people that were on their side, the Germans were definitely like the main like, this is the villain. Hitchcock responded to the criticism by explaining that the film's moral was that the Allies needed to stop fighting and work together to win the war, and he defended the betrayal of the German character saying, quote, I always respect my villain, building him into a redoubtable character that will make my hero or thesis more admirable in defeating him or it. Despite the controversy, Lifeboat earned Hitchcock his second Best Director nomination, which he lost to Leo McCary for Going My Way. After Lifeboat's release, Selznick allowed Hitchcock to return to the UK. By this point, Hitchcock was not feeling super great about not doing anything during the war, so he was there from late 1943 to early 1944 to direct war propaganda films. When asked about why he did this later, he said, quote, I felt the need to make a little contribution to the war effort, and I was both overweight and overage for military service. I knew that if I did nothing, I'd regret it for the rest of my life. 
In June and July 1945, Hitchcock also served as a quote-unquote treatment advisor on a Holocaust documentary that used Allied forces footage of the liberation of the Nazi concentration camps. It was originally made to be broadcast to the German people to kind of show them what the hell had happened, but the British government deemed it too traumatic to be shown to a post-war shell-shocked population. Instead, it was transferred to London's Imperial War Museum and remained unreleased until 1985 when an edited version was broadcast on PBS. The full-length version of the film, called German Concentration Camps Factual Survey, was restored in 2014 by scholars at the Imperial War Museum. Hitchcock returned to the U.S. in March 1944 to begin work with screenwriter Ben Hecht on a film that explored the idea of psychoanalysis. That film would become 1945's Spellbound. He and Hecht traveled to psychiatric hospitals and the like all over New England, and by the end of April, the script was completed. The film would be about a psychiatrist who protects the identity of an amnesia patient accused of murder while attempting to recover his memory. A standout element of this film is a dream sequence that was co-designed by Salvador Dali, the artist. He and Hitchcock created hundreds of drawings and oil paintings of ideas for Hitchcock to transfer onto film for this sequence. In fact, this sequence ended up getting so long and so crazy that even Hitchcock agreed with Selznick that he and Dali may have gone a little bit overboard. The risks would be worth it, as Notorious, which would come out in 1945, would earn Hitchcock his third Best Director nomination. He lost to Billy Wilder for The Lost Weekend. Before the dream sequence was fully shot, which would require a different director to come in and finish them, Hitchcock took a vacation to London after the official shooting of Spellbound wrapped. It was a part of his contract, so non-negotiable. It irritated Selznick all the same, as he knew that the London trip was in part for Hitchcock to form a production company so he could get his wish at last to fully call the shots. This endeavor, which he undertook with British businessman Sidney Bernstein, would become known as Transatlantic Pictures. Returning to L.A. just before Christmas, Hitchcock was met with the news that Selznick had lined him up for a project he'd been wanting to make for a while. That was spy film Notorious, which, like his prior film, would star Swedish actress Ingrid Bergman. After shooting Spellbound, it wasn't a stretch to say that the 46-year-old married director had developed what he thought of as complex feelings for the 30-year-old married actress. He's probably just a little bit sexually repressed. That's what the biographers say. This fascination caused deep rifts in his marriage with Alma, who at this point in the story was kind of thrown to the sidelines doing the housewife stuff. She was the one attending their daughter's performances in New York. Hitchcock even missed his daughter's Broadway debut. She was the immaculate arm candy as Hitchcock went into interviews, and she was the perfect host for their Hollywood friends. Visitors to the home during this time would often remark on the chilly vibes and loud fights that the two could be heard having. The subject matter of Notorious, a spy teaming up with the daughter of a German war criminal to gather information on a ring of Nazi scientists in South America, caused some weird letters to come across Selznick's desk. Notorious was coming together in the final months of World War II, so obviously this subject matter rifled a few people in high up places. Selznick got a letter from the U.S. government that stated the film would have to not only be approved by the Hayes office, but also by the State Department if he wanted to see it released. 
Hitchcock, who still had his hefty fear of authority figures, became paranoid that he was being followed. There is no proof that happened for what it's worth. Again, very anxious man. Selznick was twitchy enough about it, though, that he ended up selling the film to RKO and Hitchcock could just go complete it over there. Selznick still had a finger on the film, however, and even tried to get Cary Grant fired off of it. Hitchcock's final film with Selznick was The Paradigm Case, based on a novel of the same name. The director by this time already had one foot out the door and couldn't really have cared less about this film, and he made sure everyone knew that. When that got to Selznick, he was none too pleased. Before shooting of the film had wrapped, just keep in mind, shooting, not the whole film finished, just the shooting, Selznick had sent out over 400 memos, like archaic email zoomers, complaining about the director's behavior on set and how the film was progressing. The film was rushed to theaters in late 1947 to try to make the deadline for the Oscars, but all it got was a Best Supporting Actress nomination for Ethel Barrymore. Before the year was out, Hitchcock was already working on his first film as an independent producer. The first of only three transatlantic films before the company dissolved and based on a 1927 play, the film Brope is most often remembered from a blocking and camera perspective and was set to be Hitchcock's most ambitious film to date. Rope was also Mr. Hitchcock's first color film. Rope was shot to look like a series of long, continuous takes, with the edit points hidden throughout the film. Takes couldn't be longer than 10 minutes, as that was the length of a film camera magazine. So obviously, if everything's going to look like one continuous shot, choreographed camera and actor movements were incredibly important, and there was a great deal of rehearsal for this film, almost like a play. Almost every segment of this film ends by panning or tracking into an object or furniture. The only exception was at the end of 20 minutes or so, which was the length of reels at a theater, the projectionist would have to change the reels. And on these changeovers, Hitchcock just cut to a new camera setup and didn't hide the cut. So it's not it's not like, what was it, Birdman? That is meant to look like one continuous. There's There's little cuts up, but they're very, 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 very long. Shooting commenced on a rented stage at Warner Brothers on January 22nd, 1948, and the first 10-minute reel was completed on the third take. Other reels took up to 15 takes to capture. According to star Jimmy Stewart, quote, it was hard to see how the picture was going to work. We had a lot of rehearsal, but the noise of the moving walls was a problem, and so we had to do the whole thing over again for sound with just microphones like a radio play. The dialogue track was then added later. Stewart thought the whole thing was ambitious, something only Hitchcock would attempt, but didn't think it would work when it came all together. When Rope was released in August 1948, no one really noticed the techniques as they were fixating on other things. Several social and educational associations across America condemned Rope as undesirable and dangerous because of the quote-unquote homosexual undertones that occurred between two of the characters. If people are still being dicks about that in 2023, you can well enough imagine how it was probably taken in 1948. Unsurprisingly, the film bombed because homophobia, which is not a great way to kick off your solo career. After years of wanting to make it, Ingrid Bergman freed up for Hitchcock to set in motion his next film, Under Capricorn. Hitchcock would later claim he only made it to please Bergman, whose affair with director Roberto Rossellini would ironically be one of the reasons this film bombed. Hitchcock had tried to make the film consist of long takes like Rope, but that didn't work out, so he kind of abandoned that. There's still a lot of long cuts, but it's not like Rope style. 
Under Capricorn was actually such a box office bomb that Bankers Trust Company, which had financed the film, repossessed the film and it wouldn't be seen publicly for 19 years. The film Stage Fright followed, which was co-written by Alma and produced by Warner Brothers, not Transatlantic. Stage Fright is best known for the use of the unreliable narrator in the form of a fabricated flashback, meaning the person taking the audience through the film lies to them and Hitchcock dramatized the lies. By the time 1950 rolled around, Transatlantic was more or less kaput, but Warner was down to keep bankrolling future Hitchcock films. Not for the first time in his life, however, Hitchcock was feeling wholly creatively unfulfilled. Yes, he was rich. Yes, he was Hollywood powerful. And he had money and oil. He had a small vineyard and other things that rich people have. But he was widely disappointed with his film career. Stage fright, silently bombing, didn't help. He was down, but not out. The next film Hitchcock got on its feet was Strangers on a Train, which was the last transatlantic picture. The second one was Under Capricorn, if you care, which was more in his wheelhouse compared to what he'd been making over the last few years. It was a thriller, and better yet, a chunk of it took place on a train, which if you don't remember, Hitchcock loves himself a train. Strangers on a Train would mark a shift in Hitchcock's career, one that would pull him out of his post-Selznick slump. He seemed to know this, too, based on the way he threw himself into pre-production. While the film was panned in its day, modern critics have been much kinder, but audiences have always loved it, and the film was a financial hit, which is frankly the more important thing. For the remainder of 1951, Hitchcock and Alma enjoyed a quiet period, and Patricia, their daughter, announced her engagement. She married in early 1952, and Pat's acting career more or less ended after that. I Confess, Hitchcock's next film, had had one of the longest pre-productions of any of his pictures, with almost 12 writers working on the script over a period of eight years. The film got horrific reviews upon its release. After I Confess, Hitchcock planned to film The Bramble Bush for Transatlantic. However, there were problems with the script and budget, and Hitchcock and Bernstein decided to dissolve their partnership during that time instead. Warner Brothers, who was Transatlantic's distributor, allowed Hitchcock to scrap the film and begin production on Dial M for Murder instead. Dial M for Murder marked Hitchcock's first film with Grace Kelly, whom Hitchcock would refer to as the easiest actress he ever worked with. Hitchcock in general didn't really care for actors, at least when they were his actors working on his films, mostly because they came in with opinions on their characters and Hitchcock had spent months crafting all of these things and he just needed the meat puppets to say the things and do exactly what he wanted. And yeah, he didn't like he didn't like the free will of the actor. Frankly, Hitchcock probably would have loved AI, let's be honest. By 1954, TV was beating the crap out of the box office, and to try and lure people back to the theater, Dial M for Murder was shot in 3D, which was one of the gimmicks that the studios were using at the time to lure people back into the theaters. This tech forced Hitchcock to focus more on the costumes for his stars rather than the camera movements, as shooting in 3D limited what he could do. The 3D was shown only briefly in theaters as audiences hated it, so it was shown in 2D for the majority of the run. This was also one of the things that made Grace Kelly very famous because she was just in these movies just looking absolutely gorgeous in all these gorgeous outfits. That started with Dial M for Murder. 
After being pretty unhappy with his Warner Brothers era, Hitchcock set up shop at Paramount for his next film. It would be his second with Grace Kelly and also with Jimmy Stewart, and would, after a nine-year gap, earn the director a long-overdue Oscar nomination. He would lose to Elia Kazan for On the Waterfront. That film was Rear Window, which was shot entirely on the Paramount lot where the massive apartment complex set was constructed. That was a real set. There wasn't any fakery happening there. One of the unique features of this set was that it had a drainage system constructed to accommodate the rain sequence in the film. After Rear Window proved successful for Paramount, the studio lined Hitchcock up for his final film with Grace Kelly, which was To Catch a Thief. The film involved extensive international travel, which Hitchcock was eager to do. With these two successful Grace Kelly features, one already proving successful because it had been released, and the next one almost a guaranteed box office hit, Hitchcock shot The Trouble with Harry for Paramount, which was a film he'd wanted to do for a while about a small town's guilt after one of its citizens turns up dead. During the production, Hitchcock was almost killed by a 500-pound light that fell from the ceiling of a gymnasium. Hitchcock ended 1955 on a high note, having made four films in about 18 months. He and Alma went on their yearly holiday, and on this trip, he'd meet a young film journalist by the name of Francois Truffaut. Their meeting would yield one of the most famous books about filmmaking ever made. But that, and the rest of this story, is for next week. I thought I'd come out and see what the big attraction was. Yeah. And possibly even write an introduction. Oh, uh, you didn't tell me your name. Daniel Foussard. Uh, Miss Foussard, Miss Stevens. How do you do, Miss Foussard? Mr. Burns has told me so little about you. Well, we only met a couple of minutes ago. That's right, only a few minutes ago. Only a few minutes ago. And you talked like old friends. Ah, well, that's warm, friendly France for you. Well, I was, I was asking about renting some water skis. Would you like me to teach you how to water ski? Thank you, but I was women's champion at Sarasota, Florida last season. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media, where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I also forgot to mention this at the top. There is a new logo. I finally sat my ass down and watched a disappointing 49ers game and made a new logo. So yeah, that's why if you're confused, I tried to make it look similar enough to where people wouldn't be like, oh, not this. So it doesn't affect my viewership. But yeah, I kind of just silently dropped that last week. Um, I've also got a Letterboxd account, which features my watch list, film diary, and recommended viewing for this episode. You can check it out at the link in the show notes. I'm really like on word of mouth to get this podcast out there. So if you please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got the buy me a coffee where you buy me a coffee. I had cold brew out of the fridge today because I got to get everything done as quickly and efficiently as possible. And that did not involve leaving the house. I'm also buying dinner for like 20 people. So I don't got Postmates money this week. Um, (laughs) I've also got merch. Check it out. The link in the show notes. Next week, Hitchcock's final films and the legacy he left behind. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap.